0: Um, What we're going to do right now is we're going to talk about uh, sex. Yeah? Yeah? That's good. you excited about that? Okay, I'm just kidding. Let me give you a little bit of context, and then we'll jump in. So some of you are like, really? Serious? Let me, here's the context. So we started a series uh, about five weeks ago called The Image of God. And uh, typically what we do at church on Sundays is go through books of the Bible. And uh, we've been in the series in the book of Acts, and then we took a, a pause, a break from that to get into a brand new series and um, The reason why we did that is because we felt like there were some really important things that needed to be addressed, which, uh, while I'm talking right now, if you need a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. And so we felt it was really important to kind of address some of these really important topics. And all of these topics, we felt, are within this larger category of what we would call the image of God. And so the image of God is sort of this blanket concept that encompasses the idea of race, gender, sexuality, and life. So when I talk about sex, we're really kind of more specifically the idea of sexual, sexuality or sexual identity. So that's what we'll be taking a look at here today is that subject. So last week, we kind of uh, were looking at the subject of gender, which actually opened up and spawned two other messages, uh, basically because you guys were asking a lot of good questions and I felt it would be worthwhile, hopefully it was helpful for you guys, to look at the subject specifically of gender roles, how it plays out within the context of the church and the home and so on and so forth. So hopefully that was helpful. And as well, what we're going to be doing today is, like I said, is looking at the subject of sexuality, And so with that, I realize this is a really big concept to try to tackle and to understand. But before that, I want to ask this kind of a leading question that we've been asking uh, from the very beginning. It's this question that has to do with if Jesus really, truly was Lord and King over all things. uh, He's creating this new identity. So if you can throw that slide up. I think I should throw up. Here we go. Uh, So the question is, is, what would our community look like if Christ was truly King and not these cultural idols of race, gender, sexuality, or sex? And power and or comfort and and security, and what we're basically saying by way of critique is that part of what's wrong with society at large is that there are idols. Um, Society wouldn't call them as idols, uh, but the church, because we have vocabulary and language that we would use. That we would say that there are these idols, these high, lofty values that govern the way that we think and the way that we organize, and the way that we orchestrate our lives around these specific things. And what happens when we take certain things that are good, everything on this list is actually good. It's all God created, all things that God has designed to function and flourish in a particular context. But when we take those things that God has designed to function and flourish within a particular context, and rip them out of that context, and redesign them, and redefine them to be something of our own making we actually bring dysfunctionality. We bring brokenness to the whole system. So, for example, race, rather than being something that God designed as being good to demonstrate the fact that there's all sorts of different flavors and colors of humanity, when race becomes ripped out of the larger context of God and basically redefined as my race is better than your race, you have what we call racism. You have this type of ethnocentrism that brings brokenness and destruction, Uh, brings uh, the the type of violence that we see within our culture. You have one race trying to suppress or oppress another race, and that's destruction. That's that's wickedness, as we would describe it. Um, But what Jesus is up to is redesigning, recreating a brand new family whereby he is the center of it all. And people that have followed Jesus are at that center or, or, or aligning their lives around him as being at the center. So, therefore, race is not this predominant factor that guides and controls everything I think about, nor is sex, nor is uh, power, nor is comfort, nor is security, but Jesus is. And so, what we've been trying to ask is this bigger question to help us to begin to imagine, to reimagine, to rethink what it would look like for Jesus to be the center of our lives the way they should be. So, with that, what I want to do this morning, we're going to look at the subject of sex or sexuality or sexual identity. More specifically is the subject of a sex ethic. So I want to pray, and then we'll jump in and begin to take a look at the subject of sex sex ethic. I think it's important for us to pray because this topic, these topics can be oftentimes incendiary. And we recognize that these are biblical topics, so we want to make sure that we can have God breathe into these things and give our hearts and our lives some sense of hope in the context of these big ideas. So let me pray. We'll jump in. God, we ask you right now that you would uh, open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts to trust you. God, just that very thought is oftentimes scary because there's not a lot of people that we trust. There's not a lot of systems or organizations or others that we trust, at least explicitly. But God, the very heart of the gospel is a call to trust you. It's to undermine our sense of distrust. It's to redo our hearts and to give us life. So God, right now we ask that you would just open our eyes to see who you are, open our hearts to hear you, God, and then give us a sense, God, of what you're calling us to. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the Bible has a sex ethic that I want to talk a little bit about today. Now, a lot of times within a modern day context, there's a tendency to sort of apologize for this, you know, especially if you're a Christian, to look at that and be like, well, I've got to apologize for the fact that, you know, our sex ethic is different. Now, the fact of the matter is, is our world in which we live in also has a sex ethic. In other words, what I mean by that is this master principle, this idea, this concept by which we govern and orchestrate and order our lives accordingly. Now, that shouldn't shock us, um, but the question is, is what sex ethic actually leads to life and flourishing, and which ones don't? It's It's as simple as that. And which ones are we trusting? Which sex ethic are we placing our confidence and our hope in, and which ones are actually we trusting that are actually misleading us, misguiding us, and leading us down a path of further compounded, complicated brokenness as opposed to life and wholeness? So the Bible has a sex ethic, We don't we should not apologize for it, we shouldn't be embarrassed about it. Now, in recent decades, I would say the church has been guilty. This is a critique upon modern day evangelicalism. Okay, I don't have a problem with that. Um, it's a critique upon that is that oftentimes Christians have been guilty, I think, of distorting this biblically inherited quote unquote sex ethic, and oftentimes using it as a standard, or perhaps as a as a sword, to attack and destroy or to undermine uh, who's in and who's out based upon a particular cr- uh, sex criteria or sex ethic. In other words, it becomes this means of determining who's in, who's out, who do we love, who do we hate, who do we destroy, who do we attack, who do we undermine, so on and so forth. In, in other words, it, it's never God's intention to use sex or sex ethic or sex idea as, an, as a means of determining who's in, who's out. And, and, I'll, and I'll explain why in just, just a moment. Uh, weave that into the rest of the message. So, it's important to at least understand and identify the fact that the church has been guilty of, of doing this. Now, sex and sexuality, as, as, as overwhelmingly oftentimes feeling definitive as it is, it according to the Bible, is actually not the most important thing about who you are. Now, realize part of our culture and society says, no, it is the most important thing about who I am. The Bible would actually push back and say it's actually not. There are more significant, more important things define you as a human being than your sexuality and your sexual identity. So it's important to understand that. So again, this is part of the Bible's sex ethic. So my hope this morning is that we would really imbibe and embrace biblical conviction of sexuality in light of the gospel or in light of the image of God. Now, I want to lay this out, kind of what the Bible teaches is... A sex ethic. Now, I realize, in a lot of ways, many in our culture, maybe even within the church, have already, um, for the most part, dismissed or have been dismissive of any biblical sex ethic because it's often viewed as Neanderthal or ancient or uh, regressive or destructive or oppressive and so on and so forth. And, and I would say that, yes, it has become that way because of caricatures and or distortions. So, on one hand, I would absolutely agree with the argument that says the way that Christian sex ethic has been pushed by many, especially within the evangelical church, has been very destructive and oppressive. So... With that, I want to stem back a little bit and try to ask the question: what does Scripture actually teach about this subject of sex ethic? Because again, if you have already rejected it, I, I, want, I want to at least do my part as best as I can, as clear as I can, to at least uh, present a clear understanding of what a biblical sex ethic is uh, before you actually fully reject it. I just, I, w- I just want to make sure that you know what you 're actually rejecting before you thoroughly throw it out and are dismissive of it and reject it, reject it entirely so um, that's what I hope to do this morning. So with that, we'll basically be asking about four different questions um, and just going through them one by one. And my hope is to uh, leave some time at the end for some Q&A. Um, Q&A stands for question and uh, address. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm going to give you answers. I'll, I'll do the best that I can, but at least I'll, I promise you I will try to address it. Answers are, are, are subjective whether or not you like them or not. So um, anyways, uh, here's the code. You can just go to slider.com. You can type in that code. It's a new code from what it was last week. And one other final thing I'll say is this, is that um, because last week I had so many questions I was not able to get to. It was like 25 or so plus questions, and then a bunch of other people upvoted those. So it was overwhelming. I was not able to answer all of them. Um, And uh, what I'm trying to do is actually create a a separate uh, private Facebook group that's linked to our Calvary Slow Facebook page. And uh, so my encouragement to you would be to go search, just go to our Calvary Slow Facebook page, and probably just scroll down just a little bit, and you'll see near the top um, uh, an invitation to go like that. You can go be a part of that. We'll prove you to be a part of that. Um, and then uh, my, my hope is to actually either do, like, Facebook Live questions or just record a hand, handful of videos, or I'm not even sure exactly how I'm going to do it, but... Um, I realize I'm creating a lot of work for myself, but I want to do as much as I can to try to help you guys wrestle through some of these questions as best as we can within that context. So uh, check that out as well. And whatever questions we're not able to get to today, we'll um, push them to go be a part of that as well. So let's jump in. Let's jump in the pool. Uh, what is the Christian sex ethic? All right, what is the Christian sex ethic? Let's take a look at the big E on the I chart. Number one, let's look at some passages of Scripture. i want to read three, so you guys can open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24, and or read up on the screen. So read it. It says this. Now, this is really important because this is the starting place for how the Bible begins to unfold and unpack the rest of its concept of what we would call a biblical and or Christian uh, sex ethic. It all stems from this main Fountainhead. It all comes from here. Um, Jesus uh, references this passage. Jesus, uh, Paul, New Testament, references all of this. New Testament authors references this. This is literally the fountainhead that reshapes the rest of the stream uh, downstream. Um, it is, is all comes from here. So, what is it? It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So there's a handful of things to think about and to consider here. Number one is we see the heteroness of it or differentness of each other. There's man and female. There's male and female. This is a really important distinction. Now, some of the things I'm going to talk about are things that have, that dovetail into what we've been talking about over the past several weeks. So if you were not here for the past several weeks, and my encouragement to you would be to go to our website, CalvarySlow.com, download the messages, listen to them, whatever, stream them. Everything's always free, um, and they'll dovetail into that as well. But... Uh, What we see from the very beginning when God created mankind, he didn't create them as human beings. Then, after that, at some point, assign gender identity or gender uh, distinctiveness to them. God actually created them as male and as female. So that there is a maleness and a femaleness that is intrinsic to uh, these who bear God's image. Again, this is just the Genesis story. This is how the Bible understands this. And I would suggest that if you are a follower of Jesus, this is how my hope would be to convince you to think along these lines. This is how the Bible uh, encourages you to think about how maleness and femaleness is distinct within the context here. But we notice that they are brought together. Man leaves his father and mother. They come to, he comes to his wife. The two of them are together, both naked and both unashamed, which that alone is kind of an interesting insight and it's kind of shocking in some ways because we have been trained from a very young age to, to, uh, to be ashamed of our nakedness, to be ashamed of your body parts, to be ashamed of these things. And part of that is, uh, is because we, we feel a sense of nakedness. We feel, you know, we, we don't want to be publicly naked. We basically uh, run from public nakedness, unless you're a frat boy, but the point of the matter is we have this tendency to want to avoid this type of idea, because we're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being found out. We're afraid of these parts that we try to hide. And so we're not open and unashamed. We're not naked and unashamed. But in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, they both were, both naked, both unashamed. Shocking. And and in a sense, this is what God is is seeking to restore and and rebuild, and so what we see is that God brings man and woman together. There is this incredible gift of unity and love and nakedness and unashamedness, if that's even a word. If not, it's a great word. But it's all wrapped together in this thing that we would call marriage. God brings them together. And, it's, and later, he would basically give this pronouncement saying, It's good. It's good. Next verse is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Now, in a sense, on the surface, this verse has nothing to do whatsoever with marriage or uh, or sexuality or homosexuality or whatever. But it does have to do with a larger theme that God is up to in this world. Now, let's read it. It says this. Now, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. It's a really important phrase. It's a phrase that throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, he's going to kind of bring back to. Now, he says, Jesus specifically says something really important. Listen to the language that he uses. Now, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In a short sentence of just a handful of words, Jesus makes this declaration, this announcement, that something cataclysmic is about to unfold. This drama is about to be unveiled for the first time on this planet and it's revolutionary. It will radically append and overturn and overrun and take the systems of this world and turn it upside down. This is nothing short of a revolutionary statement because it is. What Jesus is calling people to is an entirely brand new way of being human. It's an invitation, and he describes it as the gospel. Good news that God is up to doing something so good, so profound, so revolutionary that it has the power to threaten the powers that be, threaten the activities that are part of the world that are pervasive and destructive, and to overturn those things and in its place give life and wholeness and cleansing and purity and newness and family and acceptance and welcome in a brand new way. There's nothing short of revolutionary. So, next verse, Paul the Apostle writes to a community of Christians that live in a city called Thessalonica. There's actually, the city still exists today in, I think it's Greece. And uh, he's writing from the uh, coastal city called Corinth, as it believed. And as he's writing to them, he's talking about giving a little bit more of a fine tune or a sharper edge to this concept of what we would now call a Christian sex ethic. He says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. More on that in just a moment. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Paul makes a distinction. He says, look, there is a sex ethic in the world. Sex ethic back then would have been the Greco-Roman sex ethic. You guys know anything about the Greco-Roman sex ethic? Sure you do. If you studied, you know, world history, you've seen some of the reliefs or the pictures or the images where just anything and everything—it looks just like a modern-day hip-hop video. All right, it's the same; it's the exact same. Just rampant sex, rampant sexuality. You had all sorts of things going on. Everything was permissible. Everything was happening under the sun. It was just uh, an ancient version of a modern-day hip-hop video. But the point of the matter is is that Paul's saying, look, here's the sex ethic of the world, Greco-Roman world, but here's the sex ethic, I'm the gospel, God, is calling you to. He says this, that it's God's will. So this, this is a great way to kind of lead, because some of us have asked that question, like, what is God's will for my life? It's like the most pervasive question that anybody who has any amount of time logged into following Jesus at some point within that early stages, or even the later stages, is like, what's God's will for my life? Well, first of all, this is it. This is so revolutionary. Here. Ready? It says this, is this uh, Your sanctification, that God would continue to make you, shape you into the image, the likeness of Jesus, and that you would abstain from sexual morality. So, whatever this is, it involves you abstaining from whatever sexual morality is, and we'll talk about that in a second here. It involves your abstinence from whatever sexual morality is. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness. So, it also involves. Uh, A level of control, a level of delayed gratification, a level of saying no, which that's radically kind of culture because our culture says, say yes, says you're entitled, says you deserve it, says take it now because that's available to you. Now, it's one of the beauties, beautiful things It's really not that beautiful, but the realities of what porn is. Porn is you can have instantaneous gratification right now in the palm of your hand by way of your smartphone, and it is... All the benefits of sex and a sexual encounter minus the baggage of relationship and commitment and devotion and so on and so forth. Um, Because I I deserve it. I work hard. I have a busy life. Career is crazy. Relationships are hard. And I deserve this. And so there's this tendency to just take and grab whatever it is that we want right now. So what Paul is saying is that whatever God's will is for your life involves saying no to whatever uh, uh, sexual morality is. It also involves... Uh, controlling one's body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles uh, that do not know God. So this is a clear call to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, live differently. Live differently than the world that's around us. So in other words, if you're a follower of Jesus and your sex ethic looks just like the sex ethic of somebody that doesn't know Jesus, that's a problem. That's actually a problem because what we should recognize is that there are some radical distinctiveness uh, between what the gospel is calling us to, which we'll talk more about that in a moment, and what we see uh, is pervasive within the world as well. So with that, I want to uh, go on a little bit further and to consider and think about this. So, so what is this? So I would try to reduce or refine into two big ideas, big concepts I think the Christian th- sex ethic is really all about. On the one hand, it involves purity. The other is another P word, which is the word pornea. So it involves purity and or pornea, So those are the two categories. On the one hand, whatever purity is, whatever that means, and pornea, whatever that is. So this is what Paul is describing. I think you can literally summarize everything. This is how the Christian sex ethic is and what it looks like and how it works. So on the one hand, purity. Let me read Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Next slide. We'll come back to this slide in just a second here. It says this. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawless leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So there's some very similar language in this passage that we just read. So there's a lot of big words, a lot of big Christianese words. So what does it mean? So for one, what does he talk about when he says your members? Think about it this way. It's your body. It's your body your actual physical body, how you use and drive your body is, is somehow controlled by the way that you think, how you feel, your, your inhibitions, your desires, um, drive what you allow or disallow your body to engage in or disengage in. Does that make sense? So what he's saying is that uh, you once presented your bodies as, as slaves. In other words, there was a sense that's what the Bible will describe as sin. We'll kind of give a little bit more of a broader definition in just a moment. Uh, as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Now he's saying, now present your body as, as uh, slaves uh, to leading towards sanctification. In other words, that your body is, is now uh, part of what God is up to in this world. The kingdom of God is coming in this world. God is upending, he's turning over these former areas of brokenness and destruction in order to bring life into you. So present your bodies, Partner with what God is up to right now by presenting your body to God, and at the same time uh, pulling your body away from those things that are taking you far away from God. That's what he's saying. Verse 20 says, uh, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do, right, to do what is right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of those things that you used to do, things that end in eternal doom or destruction. Verse 22, he says, but now you are to flee from the power of sin and have become Slaves to God. Now, do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So God gives us power, gives us strength, not to just simply avoid evil doing or wrongdoing or brokenness, but to actually to follow righteousness, to follow what's on God's heart. What's in God's mind? That's that's what it, a Christian is. A Christian's job is not to simply go around and try to avoid and to abstain all these bad things. It's actually to follow the heart of God. We're free to truly live according to the desires and the love of the One who loves us. That's what Christianity basically talks about, which we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So let's 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 uh, reconsider and think about on a little bit broader scale. So one again, there's two ways to distinguish this. On the one hand, there's sexual purity, and the other hand, there's sexual Pornea. So I'll talk about that in just a moment. So sexual purity in this context, I think the way the Bible would present this is on the one hand, there is either one of these two things. On the one hand, there's covenantal marriage. Think of covenantal as marriage. Covenantal monogamous, meaning uh, uh, two coming together, uh, heterosexual couples, male and female coming together, faithful marriage forever, meaning the male and a female come together, they love each other, they're faithful to each other, there's, there's no sex outside of marriage, there's no breaking that covenantal relationship, there's fidelity. The flip side of that is that there is covenantal faithful, covenantal meaning covenanted to Jesus, faithful meaning it's not, you know, up and down, faithful uh, um, singleness uh, to, to Christ. Singleness, like living in a single relationship, living as a single, living with what we would call delayed Gratifications until either God gives you a spouse or brings you home to be with your spouse forever. And we'll talk more about this actually next week. The subject of either celibacy or singleness. It's a big topic. I think the church is oftentimes omitted. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But it's a really important subject that the church actually throughout the history of its of its existence has done well at periods and has done really poorly at other periods. I think we're kind of in the poor section right now of the church in terms of history of this. So, talk more about that in a moment, and more so next week. But this is the way I think the Bible would present that. The flip side of this is not only sexual purity, but sexual pornea. So the big question is, what is pornea? What does it mean? Well, there's at least four or five words that are basically uh, connected or related to each other, four words, pornos, pornea, uh, pornea, and Out of all of these together, they're very similar in the way that they're used about 54 times throughout the entire New Testament. There's a bunch of other words that are translated from the Old Testament that would be in the Greek uh, version of this as well that translate from that as well. But this is just New Testament stuff focusing on this. So what is it? Um, The way that Paul and other New Testament writers would use this word, and even Jesus, they all use this word. It's sort of a junk drawer term that basically includes um, all of these. It includes adultery having sex outside of the bond of marriage with somebody that's not your spouse. It involves fornication, just any illicit hookup, sex, you know, without any type of relationship, whatever. when they stand, anything like that. Um, it involves homosexuality, lesbianism, incest. It involves a host of these things. It's sort of a junk drawer term that just sort of involves all of these uh, pos- uh, specific ideas that do not sync with or connect with this notion or concept of, of, of marital faithful sex within the context of the confines of that marital covenant relationship. So again, before you reject I just want to make sure that you understand and think through carefully how the Bible defines and distinguishes this. So let's keep going and thinking about this. Uh, New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, he wrote this. He says, throughout the, early church, throughout the early centuries of Christianity, when every kind of sexual behavior ever known, ever known to the human race, was widely practiced, Throughout ancient Greek and Roman society, Christians, like the Jews, insisted that sexual activity was to be restricted to the marriage of man and a woman. The rest of the world then, as now, thought they were mad. The difference, alas, is that today, half the church seems to think so too. In other words, this is his critique against the modern-day Christian church. That, for the most part, has begun to capitulate, in a lot of ways, to uh, modern-day sensibilities. Now what he's describing is that in the ancient world, there was all forms of sexuality that had gone awry and gone broken, and yet the church, basically was saying the message that, no, God cares about marriage, and there's a reason for it. God cares about sex. How you live your sexuality, God radically cares about. So I want you to hear that today. How you think about sexuality. How you think about your sexual orientation, how you think about your sexual identity, radically matters, not only to your life and flourishing and fruitfulness, but it also matters to God because you were made to bear His image. So that leads to the next question that I think is, is really important. So, what was God's purpose for sex? Like, what did God have in mind when He designed this, this, this action, this activity? of two people coming together for this purpose. Now again, we look at some of this uh, last week and the weeks before last and when we look at the subject of gender differences and so on and so forth. But let's take a look at what was God's purpose for sex. So let's go through three of them, one. Um, and each one of these three is kind of combined together. They, they stand together. Um, in some ways, they can even fall together. But each one of these things are really important. One, partnership. This involves complementary, covenant, male and female marriage, vow, Uh, So this idea of sex in this context is like a vow renewal. Very similar. It's kind of like when we, as a church community, partake of the communion. We eat the bread. We drink the cup. It's a way of reminding us of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus did for us on the cross. Um, And so when sex happens in the context of marriage, what takes place is this revivification of, of love. And covenantal vows, when it's withheld or doesn't happen or it's squandered because one of the spouses is constantly downloading porn and that's disruptive in the context of the marriage relationship, it brings brokenness and destruction into the context of that marriage relationship. So it actually undermines the very purpose that God intended for it. It's one of the reasons, like I said earlier before, why porn is such a bad thing. I mean, there's all sorts of studies that have been done recently um, by leading non-Christian scientists that are basically just proving that, that porn has this ability to actually desensitize our enjoyment of sex. So on the one hand, there's this sense of thinking more sex, more porn will actually heighten my acceptance and enjoyment of sex, but actually it's undermining it. It's desensitizing us to actually enjoy it. And the point is, first of all, it's created for partnership. The second thing, is created for pleasure. So everything I just said fits under this context of pleasure, that God designed it to actually feel good. And when we rip it out of its original context, the context for which God designed it, and we begin to uh, squander it in multiple ways and multiple partners over multiple you know, days uh, and, and oftentimes live that in a, in a typical habitual pattern, we actually lessen it and bring about our own brokenness. So for example, one guy... He described it this way. Uh, he said that sex was seemed to be designed, and he makes his analogy, so it's kind of like a post-it note. That a post-it note, that if you stick it up on the mirror, and it functions in a great way. But if you take that post-it note and keep sticking it on multiple mirrors and multiple surfaces, after a while, it will lose its stickiness and fail to do what it was intended to do, to stick. It doesn't work anymore. It loses its stickiness. And the same goes for sex. God intended for sex to be done within a marriage. So one of the reasons why Christians throughout history have encouraged people to say, restrain, withhold... Find power and strength. And actually, next week, we're going to talk about some practical ways to do this. So I'm going to avoid some of the practical elements and reserve that for next week. Um, to figure out ways to restrain this. Because here's what happens. When sexual indulgence just simply happens as a form of entitlement, as a form of just simply, I want to do it because I want to do it. I want to just satisfy myself. What, you, what ends up happening is you, uh, you, you belittle that relationship. And sex is intended by God to be something that's a gift to be given to the other partner. When that covenantal relationship is signed by way of marriage, not by way of signing a piece of paper, but by way of saying, I will pledge and give my life, and it's entirely, 100% brokenness and good things in all, in total, to be received and accepted by you till death do us part. And then you give that incredible gift of your sexuality to them to be enjoyed, pleasurable. Third one is procreation. And obviously, have kids. But to have kids, you have to have a certain gender to be able to make this happen. It's one of the things. Again, all three of these things kind of come together. So I want to move on to the very next thing, which is what has gone wrong? What has gone wrong? Because obviously, something has gone wrong. Something's gone awry within our culture and our society, even within the church, even within the mind of Christians. Because this thing that was intended to bring great pleasure, uh, great great uh, partnership, is somehow failing to deliver on that end. So what has gone wrong? Well, the simple, typical answer is sin, which is the correct answer. But uh, like I find with most things, sin needs to be defined. Like because oftentimes the way that sin gets defined within the culture at large is oftentimes uh, a, a gross uh, a caricature of what it was intended. So sin, oftentimes when people say, well, you're a sinner, or that's sin, or homosexuality is a sin, oftentimes it comes off as a hammer in a hand, bringing a devastating, destructive blow upon the life of another person. That's not how the Bible is intended to see that. Excuse me, hold on. But the point that I would make is that when it's ripped from that original context, and redesigned to become a hammer that brings a blow of destructiveness and hurt and ruin upon another person, it actually undermines the very purpose for which the word is intended to be. So I like to think of the word sin. Now, interestingly, throughout the Bible, there's actually no clear definition. You're not going to find a passage in the Bible that says sin equals whatever the fill in blanks. It doesn't say that, but it gives examples and demonstrations of how it plays out. Here's a way I would give you a definition of this. So sin is a violation a distortion, and a rejection of God's design. Short and simple. In the New Testament, the word sin that's actually used there just simply means to miss the mark. Simply means to miss the mark. So it's actually an archery term. Some of you guys, I'm sure, probably heard this before. It's the idea of shooting an arrow, and the aim of the arrow is to, or the purpose of the arrow is to hit the bullseye. But if you fail to hit that bullseye, then that arrow failed to do what the arrow was intended to do. It missed the mark. And so sin, in its simple definition, is to miss the mark for which God the designer intended for things to function and flourish and to flow. So what that means is at some point it could be a violation, it could be a distortion, just kind of distorting it, innovating, uh, uh, remaking, redefining something to kind of fit our understanding or fit our sensibilities or to sound like it fits more sensibly within the culture at large. At some point, it will become a distortion and or... A rejection of not only God's design, but shockingly at some point may even be a rejection of God himself. And when that happens, we're in a place of incredible brokenness. And that's what the Bible describes for the wages of sin is death. So here's an example. I'll just kind of read another passage to you guys out of the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 3. It's a great passage. I think it's a, it's a great way to define this in a very descriptive way. And the writer of Jeremiah says this. Actually, referring to God, he says, God says, my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug out for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Now, two things that God says. uh, On the one hand, they've actually abandoned me. But it's not just some sort of arbitrary term, like you've abandoned this master power of the universe. God actually uses an analogy that was incredibly poignant to that first century, who lived in a desert nonetheless. Right Now, we are coming, hopefully... Uh, can I get an amen in just a second? To the tail end of rain. Amen? amen? Who's ready for the sun? Like, I'm ready for the sun. Like, we had it for a couple days, and we're back at rain. I'm like, ah, I want sun again. Um, but imagine living in a desert, first century, where you do not have accessible uh, means to, to get water. You are absolutely dependent upon water that comes out from the ground or water that comes down from the rain. You need water to survive. Water is a matter of life or death. You had no water, you die. And God says, I am a fountain of living water. And you guys have rejected and turned away from the fountain of living water. But that's not all you did. The flip side of this is that you've actually turned to something else. You've begun to dug out cisterns, which are these massive vats underground that kind of oftentimes collect rainwater. And the rainwater is kind of filled with exactly what you'd imagine rainwater to be filled with, all sorts of dirt and bacteria and nasty stuff and elements that you don't really want and God even says it's got a broken There's it a broken system so there's a crack in it so imagine draining out all the good stuff and all you're left with is just a sludge and an acid on the end and he says my people have rejected me this fountain of living water instead they have actively worked and pursued to discover alternative ways and their alternative ways have been cheap counterfeits we as a community of humanity, rather than saying, God, we delight to do your ways, God, we want what your heart offers, we as a humanity have said we will innovate on life and sexuality and gender and identity, and we will create, and instead we've come up not with the life-giving water of God, we've innovated something that has actually become lesser than the life-giving God. It's a cistern of broken and ruined and messed up water. And so what we see is that God is actually calling us to consider and to really reconsider and think about how this all plays out. So what has gone wrong is really the most important thing to think about. Now, Tim Keller in uh, teaching writes and talks about a handful of three things. The way he describes is that these are three ways that sex and or sexual identity have actually become idols in our society. So we talk at the very beginning, what would our community and our culture look like if God were to be centermost and not these cultural idols? How has sex become an idol? So he does a really good job at trying to uh, delineate and to think through and to nuance the concept of sex within the modern culture, within idolatry. So how does this happen? So he describes it in three different ways. On the one hand, he says that there is a traditional idol or traditionalist idolatry. The way he defines that he goes on to describe that uh, this is an exaggerated uh, sexual gendered differences that 's oftentimes built upon this ancient uh, identity of rigid gender roles. For example, male as the macho guy, woman as the frilly woman that wears a dress, has high heels and makes baked cookies for the husband when he comes home, and is constantly under the heel or under the thumb of a heavy-handed, oppressive male figure within her life. And what he describes is sort of this traditionalist idol. It's oftentimes been within this idol that marriage and family... Marriage, being married, and family having kids, has oftentimes become sort of subordinate idols under this as well. And it goes something like this. They've been elevated to these destructive levels. So it plays out in ways like this that unless you're married, so within a culture and a community that basically idolizes within this traditionalist idolatry and marriage and family, that if you're married or if you're unmarried, you're single and or divorced, and or, you know, widowed or whatever, that you're, you're, you're trash, you're nobody, you're worthless, because you don't have a kid, you don't have a partner, you're not married, you're nobody. And you're oftentimes treated as that. And this is to the shame of the church. And I would say for the most part, in a lot of ways, many modern-day evangelical churches have erred within this uh, idolatry. They've imbibed and been influenced by this concept that the most important thing in the Christian community is making sure that they get a good spouse and a great family because there's a whole other host of things that we can talk about, which I'm not going to. Um, But the point is is that this has created sort of a context that has alienated and brought brokenness on the hearts and lives of many countless people. So for example, you can even be married and not be able to have children. And you feel alienated because you're not part of the the family. You You don't have kids. That's really unfortunate. Or if you're single, like, well, when are you going to meet Mr. Right? And this is destructive. I remember talking to this gal, and this is a whole tangent. I didn't plan on talking about this. But I'll tell you how this played out. There's a gal that I know, really good, a really good friend of mine, um, that I was having a conversation with at a pastor's conference. She's a, uh, she's a missionary. and While I'm talking with her, so she's kind of in her mid-30s. She's been serving Jesus for a long time and a uh, super gifted, communicating teacher. And while I'm talking with her, some, some dude comes walking up, and he's like, he's like, so when are you going to get married? And he's like, I felt like God gave me a vision that he told me that you're going to marry someone. And as he walked away, I just looked at her, and I can tell by the look on her face that that was, like, painful. I said, what was that all about? She goes, she just shook her head and was, like, really sad. I'm like, that, that was horrible. like, I'm sorry you had to deal with that. She goes, it happens to me all the time. Being a lady in her mid-30s, not married, everybody thinks something's wrong with me. And I said, I'm I'm sorry you had to deal with that. that. That's horrible. And what happens is that is revelation that this traditionalist idolatry has kind of taken heart of a context. And it brings, and I would even say one other final thing before I move on to the next one. Because I would say that's in this context of this uh, uh, traditionalist idol that is historically from this model that those who have same-sex attractions, those that are often within the GBLTQI community have oftentimes felt the most criticized, alienated, and marginalized because they don't fit in with that traditional mentality. And to you, if that's you, if you suffer with same-sex attraction, if you go through challenges and hardships you try to navigate all this you find yourself in gender confusion gender dysphoria whatever the case is and you have felt marginalized or alienated because of those representing this model I want to say on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Jesus who I think are well meaning but unfortunately have imbibed an idolatry that they are not even aware of I'm sorry that's unfortunate that's not the gospel next one is what he describes as a deconstructionalist idolatry. So within this context, he says that this is sort of a reaction to traditionalist idolatry. It's driven to prove that traditional anything, traditional anything is all wrong. In a lot of ways, this is sort of imbibed within the modern progressive model, um, sort of epitomized by what would be described, I would say, as the sexual revolution. So... Um, if you're familiar with that, obviously that term, terminology, maybe the, the sexual liberation movement. Um, this is just taken from the Wikipedia page. It says this: that the sexual liberation was a social movement that challenged. This isn't a language. It challenged the traditional codes. So if you're Christian, you're reading that through Christian lenses. You can say it challenged the traditional idol. That's good because I think it needs to be challenged. It, it needs to be challenged. But it challenged traditional codes or idols of behavior related to sexuality and interpersonal relationships throughout the Western world from 1960 to 1980s. Sexual liberation included increased acceptance of sex outside of the traditional uh, heterosexual monogamous relationships, marriage, the normalization of contraception, the pill, public nudity, pornography, premarital sex, homosexuality, alternative forms of sexuality, and the legalization of abortion uh, all ultimately followed from this Sexual revolution. So he would describe that this is a deconstructionalist ideology trying to undermine and to rec- recreate something in the place of this former traditionalist model that has actually brought great um, ruin because it's been elevated to a place that God, this is not it's the traditionalist model. It's, I mean, there may be elements that reflect parts of who God is, what the scripture is, but it's a distortion. It's a caricature. So, and the final one as he describes is what he says is the consumer idol. And this is, this is an idol that basically tends to assess people purely on a superficial level using sex not as a means for which God intended, partnership, pleasure, procreation, but really as a means for self-gratification. So sex becomes nothing more than me gratifying and satisfying uh, a, a, a fleeting passion and desire that I have instantaneously within that moment. He goes on to describe that really this is the power of our lives, power over our lives, and I say in many, in a lot of ways, this is kind of uh, it's, it imbibes a lot of this generation. It's it, it definitely what fuels uh, the, the, the passion, the desire behind apps like Tinder and so on. Just the idea of want a quick hookup and there's nothing desired, nothing wanted beyond that, no lifelong covenantal relationship, no desire to give oneself entirely sacrificially to another person. It's, I want sex now, quickly, fast, as quickly as I can, and to get on with the rest of my life. It's it's this consumerist mentality. And there's three ways to think about this, that sex is viewed as a narcotic, because it is. It's absolutely viewed as a narcotic, Now, no one necessarily think of it as that way, but we know, uh, science has proven that, when you engage in sex and or porn or whatever, that releases dopamine, which is sort of that pleasure uh, sensory in your brain that it's, it feels really good. Um, so it releases a sense of, of, of a narcotic scent. Uh, second. It sees sex really as a means of leveraging power over another. And oftentimes it could be a part of this and what kind of feeds into much of even rape culture today. There's a lot of different ways to even think about this. This is no doubt one of the criteria, one of the ways in which it feeds into that. It's a mentality, not just simply to gratify one's immediate desires for sex, but it's also a means to leverage power by way of sex over another person. It's a distortion. It's a destruction. It's an idol. It's fueled by demonic forces that need to be unmasked and exposed and repented of if those are things that you find within your own heart. And then finally, it sees sex really as this identity. Sex as an identity. Identifying specifically and explicitly with a particular orientation or idea or concept. And what ends up happening, rather than receiving the gift of God of a new identity, a new life found in Jesus, it's a rejection of that saying, I will choose to accept an identity from based upon emotions and feelings and desires that I, I feel. So these are way he describes various ways that this this world has kind of gone wrong. And it needs deep help and healing from Christ. In closing, I want to finish with a final question, which is how should we then respond in light of this Christian sex ethic? So the first thing I think is really important, so make sure you don't miss this part. First of all, the Christian sex ethic is not the same thing as the gospel. Say it again. The Christian sex ethic, everything I've just been talking about, is not the same thing as the gospel. It's a principle. It's an ethic. And the distinction here cannot be expressed more emphatically. Because if you think the Christian sex ethic is just simply something to somehow put on and to live according to, one or two things will either happen. You will be overwhelmed by a sense of despair and brokenness because you will constantly feel this overwhelming sense of failure and destructiveness, this Christian sex ethic cannot give you wholeness nor holiness. Only Jesus can do that. Only the gospel can supply that. So you either feel this overwhelming sense of despair because you are constantly failing, or you will feel this overwhelming sense of superiority because you will fool yourself into thinking that you're living according to some sort of Christian ethic, And you will look at others that are not within that context. You'll become critical and judgmental and destructive and alienating of anybody else that is not like you. And predominantly, like I mentioned earlier, this is how the Christian church, for the most part, has oftentimes treated those that do not share a traditionalist perspective and have oftentimes alienated and broken, destroyed, and become unwelcoming to those that are not like them, particularly J, B, T, Q, I, uh, community, uh, same-sex people. So, that being said... It's important to understand that what the gospel is, is this invitation from God to come to him. In the story of Jesus, we see little examples. One, primarily, that comes to my mind. Jesus, as we're all familiar with, he's having this dialogue, this gal who has been caught, literally, we're told, in the act of adultery, which meant she was married to somebody else, having sex with another dude that was not her husband. And she was in the, caught in the act of it. And she's brought before Jesus... And what happens is in the dialogue is that Jesus is not put off by her. He welcomes her. He often he invites and welcomes and loves people that are broken. The gospel, the message of the gospel is that we have a God that has stepped into our world. Because he's not put off by your sexual dysfunctionality, brokenness, confusion, disorientation, dysphoria. Not put off by any of that. But absolutely loves you as an image-bearer who's been broken by sin and invites you to trust him. That's what the gospel is. So it's always an invitation to trust God, to trust him to give you a brand-new identity, trust him to give you a brand-new family, to trust him to give you new desires, to trust him to give you the strength and the energy to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to him. Again, like I said, we'll unpack more of what I think that could look like next week as we get into this. But... That's all I have to say about this. So that's how I'm going to finish this message. I'm going to pray, and we'll look at some questions. Hopefully, you guys have been submitting some questions or upvoting some. So I know it's kind of an like anticlimactic end to a message, but hopefully, some of the Q and A might be helpful. So let me pray. We'll look at some of the questions. God, thank you for the gospel which liberates us and sets us free. Thank you for Jesus who forgives us and washes us and cleanses us. God, that there's nothing that you're put off by. But God, we thank you that you've come into our world and you've allowed the defiling nature of our own sin to come upon you, to bear that for us so that we who are broken can be made whole. So God, we trust you right now. And pray for those even here right now that are, that are struggling um, and feeling overwhelmed and maybe feeling defiled or broken or guilty. God, I pray that they would recognize that in you, you take their guilt, in you, you take their dysfunctionality. In you, you take all of the things that they feel ashamed of and you bear that and you give them life and wholeness. You call them to take upon themselves a brand new identity, one that is life-giving and beautiful and good. So we trust this time in your hands right now. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys ready? You guys wanna do a little Q&A? Is that cool? Anybody? All right, all right, here we go. Uh, first one is, can a person follow Jesus and be gay? Can a person follow Jesus and be gay? I would say uh, it depends upon how you define the word gay. I think it's important. Like all words, you just got to define it. You got to think about what is actually being said or asked within that context of that question. So I would say this. I would kind of like to break it down into three ways to think about what does someone typically mean when they use the word Okay, three ways I would like to kind of nuance this or break down. On the one hand, three dimensions. One hand is desire, identity, secondly. Thirdly is action, like what somebody does. So on the one hand, uh, the concept of desire, these are inclinations or attractions or things that one has within their heart that go after either a same-sex attracted person or even for a heterosexual dude in a marriage uh, longing for someone that's not his wife. Um, Desires. Secondly, identity. This is the concept of orientation. Uh, it bleeds into this larger concept of saying, this is my identity, this is who I identify with, this is the people that I associate with. These are the ones where I get uh, the identity or I self-identify with this with uh, group of people. Third one is the concept of action. Um, what I do, it's how I engage. Sexually, it's who I'm having sex with. So let's take number one to think about this. So can I be... A, a follower of Jesus, and be gay, if gay is meaning just simply having same-sex attractions. um, I would say, yes, absolutely. You can follow Jesus. In the same way that you can be a heterosexual that follows Jesus that has desires for somebody that's not your spouse. Or a single person that has desires for somebody that's, that's, that's not. Now, it's what you do with those desires that really matters. So a follower of Jesus learns how to take those desires and bring them captive. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. So don't, don't miss next week. It's a way for us to know how to take desires that, again, you are not your desire. See, so the world is basically telling us, no, you are your desire. You are what you think and how you feel and how you're oriented. And the gospel will actually say, no, desires are powerful. And they might feel overwhelming to some degree to some, at some time. But they are not the greatest thing about you. They are not what define you. And that desires can be, uh, uh, by God's strength and help, um, postponed, curbed, taken care of, so on. So... The next one is the concept of identity. Can I be a follower of Jesus and be gay if you identify gay as being uh, an identity or identify with a particular community? And this is where I would say it gets a little bit challenging. And I would, I would push back a little bit further and say, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. And here's why. Here's why. Because if the heart of Christianity is to say that we have received a new identity, we have received by Jesus a brand new identity, follow him. I would say if we don't like that identity or we're, we're a little bit troubled with that identity or pushed off that identity, I would say it's either A, on the one hand, it's, a, it's an, uh, a, a failure to fully understand what Jesus has done for you. So, you know, you want to grow in your faith. You want to grow in your understanding what Jesus has done for you. Or at worst, it's a rejection of what Jesus has done, which, you know, again, that's where I would begin to say into that Realm, it's, it, it's moving into the realm of, of maybe even a rejection of, of Christ. It's a rejection of the gifts, rejection of the identity that he's actually given you, which may actually play into a rejection of Christ. So I think identity is a really important one to think about and to consider. And then, uh, can I be a follower of Jesus and be gay if the idea is practice same-sex acts? Um, the answer to that is no, no, you can't. And in the same way that I would say if you're heterosexual, like, can I have sex and you know, be sleeping with my girlfriend or living with her and shacking up with her or having one I sense? No, like, that that's inconsistent. Like, that is not consistent. Here's why. Again, in ancient pagan cultures, it's very common. Like, all the, the, the gods and goddesses um, were very, uh, I don't know if they are polygamous, but they had lots of sexual partners, right? And I think, like, that's part of the profile. If you're, like, Sign up, like, I want to be a god or goddess. Like, you've got to be able to have an insane level of, of, of endurance to have an insane amount of sex with a lot of people um, and or demigods and so on and so forth. I, I think that's part of the whole, like, profile of being a god or demigod. Um, and therefore, those that worship or devoted, you know, their lives to Zeus or Artemis or Diana or some of the other ancient gods and goddesses, um, they live like them. Does that make sense? They live like them. Uh, um, but following Yahweh who's been revealed in Christ, who's pure, who de- who's not sexually active, but who has insanely devoted himself in his entirety to his bride faithfully. That pattern, God says, that's the pattern that you're to play out in your life, which includes your sexuality, which is not the most important thing about you, but it is an important thing about you but not the most important thing about you. So it plays into that. Does that make sense? It's really important to think about that in that particular context. So um, practice is a big thing because, again, like I said, you can be a heterosexual and be having multiple encounters and and, and say, I'm a Christian. No, that, that doesn't work that way. Like, there's an inconsistency, an incongruity that needs to be unmasked. You're believing a lie about yourself and about God that needs to be exposed because your path is actually a destructive path that will lead to brokenness and further ruin for your life. So, hopefully that makes sense. Next cue and address is... uh, This one just updated here. There's substantial evidence establishing a genetic foundation to homosexuality. Um, So... Ask the rest of the question, and it says God is the architect of our DNA. Does this mean that He laid the foundation for that? I'm assuming. Does that mean that God laid the foundation for us to actually be um, either uh, heterosexual or homosexual, or have these inclinations or desires and so on? So, first of all, I would just take the first uh, statement, which is there's substantial evidence. Uh, establishing a genetic foundation for homosexuality. I want to press back on that just a little bit uh, and gently. Um, I've done hours, countless hours of research from both secular um, authors and scientists um, writing against kind of a Christian worldview, those that have been written from a Christian worldview. I've read those that are affirming, those that are non-affirming within the Christian context. I've, I've been pretty broadly, widely read on this over the years, many, many years. And I would say that there is no uniform agreement on this question, on this, on this statement. So I, I would push back a little bit and just say, um, no, I don't think there is actually that evidence that has been proven. That. Now, even if someone comes up and says, we've just discovered it, it's absolutely not proven, I don't think that necessarily in any way undermines the, the gospel story as well. Because here's what I would suggest, is that all of us were born in this world, and we have these desires that oftentimes are, that are not in sync or in line with God. We have desires, whether it be you know for a same-sex attracted person to have sex with another person or to be intimate with another person of the same sex, or within a heterosexual context to say, "I want something that is not in line or incongruent, that is that is congruent with the heart and the mind of God." And I would say again, the, the the hope of a Christian is to say we are not defined by our desires. We take our desires to God. We ask God to give us new desires. And there are times that God gives us new desires and flushes out and removes those desires. There are times that God gives us grace to manage those desires. There's times that God gives us strength and power and ability and community of people to help us within the context of uh, of accountability to manage those desires. So uh, God is the architect of our DNA. Does this mean that uh, he laid a foundation for that? Um, again, I I, I think the the Bible narrative is that we are born into a broken world and therefore as broken image bearers of God, we all have a variety of things that are just simply broken that we are invited to bring to King Jesus to reorient, to reestablish, to bring healing into our hearts and our lives. All right, next next question. Um, Sorry, this seems like updating as I'm talking here, so... Okay, many Christians now believe much in the slavery issue of old. Uh, we've interpreted the Bible text against homosexuality wrong. Can you address why this is untrue? So, um, th- this, is, this is a really big question that I actually... Um, skipped over first service, and the reason why is because I feel like it it deserves a little bit more time to kind of help give some better expression to it than the time that we have here, so um, I would highly recommend you go to that Facebook page, and I will do the best that I can to uh, do some research and try to provide as best answer for you guys as I can on that. Again, I'm not trying to dodge it. I just want to give it the the proper due that it's it's worth. All right. If a Christian has homosexual attraction, should they stay single, or is it okay to pursue a healthy, non-homosexual relationship leading to marriage uh, and family. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this next week. And again, I would say, if a Christian has a homosexual attraction, should they stay single, or is it okay to pursue a healthy non-homosexual relationship leading to marriage? Um, oh, wow. Okay. I, I, not, I, and I mean, um, I, have, I, have, I have friends that are in this church um, that are part of the ministry of this church that have same-sex attractions. Um, I have friends that have same-sex attractions actually married to a heterosexual partner. Um, and I and they they, uh, are seeing the opportunity of partnership with a heterosexual relationship. Um, And they would say that to this day, they still have homosexual attractions. That their homosexual attraction did not go away the moment they said, I do, to the one who's their heterosexual spouse. God bless you. But the point of the matter is, is um, I would say what we should be living for is, is obedience to God and how to surrender... Our sexual desires to God to help us to live in fidelity and faithfulness to him um, is an important thing, which we'll, like I said, we'll we'll give some more uh, practical answers to that next week. I'm going to answer one more because we're almost done. Why is homosexuality sin? Why do some people have homosexual desires? Okay, um, the first part, I think I might have answered that, I hope. And if I didn't, please feel free to ask me further. Um, Second part of that is why do some people have homosexual desires? And the answer to that is I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why some people even have heterosexual desires that are beyond the scope of of marriage or why some have sexual impulses that seem to be off the charts and don't know how to control themselves or are are constantly feeling overwhelmed by guilt and shame. Um, I don't know. I I really don't know the answer to this. Um, um, But what I would say is that we have a God that is not beyond... The scope of understanding what it feels to be tempted on every part as we are, yet without sin. Um, um, What we see is a God that comes into human form, human flesh, and lives the life that we live. Experiences the things that we experience. Yet, somehow, by God's power, says no to things. Again, like I said, uh, Jesus becomes this incredible paradigm of what it means to live single and childless and successful. <laughs> never had a kid. Never had a spouse. Never had sex. I realize that's shocking. For some, we like, oh my gosh, never had sex. Like, how can you live? Like, I mean, that's our culture. It's like, how can you live without having sex every other day? Like, well, you actually can. You actually can be a fully functioning human being, full of life and representing God's image in this world and being a life-giving agent in this world to everybody around you without ever having sex your entire life. Because Jesus did it. Um, All I'm saying is that the Christian hope says we have a God that comes alongside of us in the midst of our temptations and challenges and difficulties and our dysphoria and our confusion. And he seeks to bring help and strength and grace and guidance in the midst of that. And that good news, again, is not the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic comes out of the good news. The good news is that we have a God that's not put off by our brokenness or sinfulness, or rejection, or rebellion. In fact, he invites us to trust him. So I'm going to finish with that. So let me pray. Is that cool? Let me pray. God, thank you for your love. Thank you that you invite us to trust you. And we want to uh, give and render our hearts, our confidence to you. And if there's here, those right now, God, that are feeling... um, Maybe this topic has brought up a lot of hurt and wounds... Uh, in their heart, and just the, just the very topic of it in this context is, is very uh, discomforting. Uh, God, you promised to give us life, so please come to those right now and bring hope and healing. God, thank you that in spite of how broken and filthy and ruined and defiled our lives have become, either by our own doing or by others doing to us, and we the victims. God, we thank you that you promise to give us purity, to make us clean, to somehow re-virginize us so that in your sight, God, we are spotless and pure and holy. So God, if there's any here right now that are, are feeling the weight of that, remind them of Jesus Remind them of the power of the cross that has the power to forgive and wash and cleanse and restore and empower. So God, if there's any here right now that are just feeling a weight of guilt or shame or shamefulness, Jesus, thank you that you are greater than all of that weightiness. Nothing holds you down, not even the power of the grave. You rose and conquered the grave, our greatest enemy. So, uh, Jesus, help us to follow you with all of our heart because you, Lord, you hold the words of life. You are the words of life. We trust you with all that we are, even our sexuality. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.